All right. I think um, we we're going to kick the session off. Uh, for so for those who don't know, the the plenary has run over by 20 minutes. I see there are still a few people trickling in. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I, welcome to this morning's session. Um, I think I'll let each of, of the two presentations introduce the, the name of their presentations because I believe there are some um, slight adjustments uh, to the names. But I'd first like to welcome uh, Alex and, and Sumeri. Um, so just some background on them quickly. So Sumeri has built a career as one of the leading short-term insurance actuaries in South Africa. She used to head um, a short-term insurance consulting uh, firm called Quindium for over 15 years. And in 2011, Quindium was um, acquired by EY and uh, Sumri became a partner at EY and head of the African Actuarial um, Services uh, Insurance Practice. Over the years, Sumri has served as an actuarial advisor to most of South Africa's large insurers. Alex also co-founded Quindium Consulting back in 2001 and he became the head of EY's Africa Actuarial Services when the company was incorporated into EY. He's worked with a broad range of organizations spanning life, short-term insurance, life and short-term insurance and concentrating on areas such as risk and capital management, strategy and analytics. In 2016, Alex and Sumeri, uh, together with a third co-founder, Ernest North, successfully raised funding and started to work full-time on Naked which launched, launched its AI-based car insurance offering earlier this year in April. I'd like to welcome Alex and Sumeri. I'm sorry, ma'am. I know you're upset. Pretend to be upset. <laughs> you authorized payment on the Walker policy? Someone broke into their house, Mr. Huff. Their policy clearly covers them. I, I, I don't want to know about litigation. their coverage, Bob. Don't tell me about their coverage. Tell me how you're keeping insurance in the black. Tell me how that's possible with you writing checks to every Harry Hardluck and Sally Sob story that gives you a phone call. So we have seen more and more uh, insure tech companies starting up all over the world. And many of these companies are saying that they want to fix insurance. Now when we look at something like the motor insurance market and you talk to people in that market, they'll tell you that it's overtraded, highly competitive, difficult to make money. So if you hear things like that, you'll think, well, of course customers must then be getting a good deal and that they must be 
ecstatically happy. But if you go and talk to the man on the street and, and you ask them their view, you'll see that their view is much closer to that of the producers of Incredibles that used insurance to demonstrate the opposite to helping people. And if we look at the large amount of conduct regulations that have been coming our way, it's pretty obvious that the regulator also believed that there's work to be done. Now, over the last two years, we have spent quite a bit of time thinking about which one of these two perspectives are more accurate. And what we're going to do in, in the time we have with you today is share some of our thoughts and also have a look at what we think that this holds for the future of insurance. Okay, so let's, let's do some economics. In 1970, uh, an economist by the name of George Akerlof wrote uh, a paper called The Market for Lemons, where he looked at how the quality of goods that is traded in a market degrades in the presence of information asymmetry between buyers and sellers. Okay, well, in more simple terms, if you take the second-hand car market, if, if the sellers can distinguish between the good cars, the peaches, and the cars that aren't so good, the lemons, but the buyers can't tell the difference. What happens in the market is that you end up with only lemons being sold in the market. The, the, the sellers choose not to sell the good cars on, on the market. And this is the market for lemons. So what we're going to be talking about and addressing the questions that Sumeri was asking is, is about how the market for insurance and, and particularly in the case of personal lines insurance and particularly in direct, the market for insurance is indeed a market for lemons. So that's, that's what we're going to be exploring. Because if it is a market for lemons, then what it means is that you can only sell bad insurance in, in the market. Okay. So the, the core thing about this is the question of information asymmetry. When a buyer is deciding about insurance, are they able to distinguish between the different products? Are they able to make an informed decision? And the view that we formed is that in fact that they're not, that there is a product comparability problem, right? You cannot get into a well-informed position and make, an and, and make a sensible choice when you purchase insurance. So let's start by having a look at what this actually looks like for a product where you can make this decision. So consider purchasing a new cell phone, uh, a toy for your kid. What's the process you go through there? Well, typically you're going to have a, you know, you might go into the store, you're going to try out the product, you're going to see whether the things that you wanted to do are likely to be the case, that the product is going to perform. You're going to speak to your friends about it, you might read some online reviews, you're going to form an, you're going to form an opinion about that. Right. So that works generally pretty well. In the case of insurance, however, it doesn't. And let, let me go through why. The first thing is that the performance of insurance can really only be assessed in the future. Performance here, we're talking about things like getting your claims paid. It's very difficult to test drive insurance to see whether your claims are going to be paid before purchasing. Right? And, and yeah, and this is, and this is a sort of a, a, a deep problem that's, that is, is really impossible to resolve. But the, the, this, this future performance is, is not only uncertain, it also depends on provider discretion. In any insurance policy, there are areas that are gray. 
You know, things like the definition of negligence, uh, the definition of, you know, roadworthiness on your vehicle, those kind of things are, are pretty uncertain and areas that providers can use their own discretion in, in deciding how to apply that. So it varies from one company to another. It varies over time within a, within a single company and it actually can vary between individual claims handlers at a single company. So this, this, this provider discretion is another element that's extremely difficult to predict in advance. How you know, the, the, the particular company in your particular circumstances is going to apply its discretion. It's made worse by the fact that the provider has a significant information advantage over the customer. Insurers know insurance law, how the ombudsman works better than any, any customer does. They, um, yeah, they, they, they're, just, they're just in a position where you know, they can understand their wording best, how their operations work, right? You know, why is it that you need to go and talk to Norma Wilcox on the third floor and file a WS2475 form with the legal department on the second floor? All of these things you know, just make life really difficult for, for customers. Um, Right, and, and so this is, you know, and this is the sort of the core, the core problem we're looking at. In the context of South Africa and in the context of direct insurance, a good example is, um, is the case of premium increases on renewal. Particularly in the direct space, it's completely routine, and I'm sure many of you in this, in this space actually work on this, is figuring out, you know, how high an increase you can put through uh, and, and, you know, in order to retain and maximize the value of your book, right? I mean, that's a common thing. And, and you know, you would think if you were applying standard economic theory that, well, you, you know, people would just leave when the, when the price is too high. They'll just go and find somebody else where the price is lower. But, of course, we know from this behavior that this doesn't happen, right? People are apathetic in, in, at that stage of, of the life cycle with their insurance. And, and, so this is, and so this is the reality that people are able to, to generate value by, by applying these kind of techniques which are really directly at the cost of their customer. And you can't really use the, and you, you can't really use the argument, well, customers are field, you know, free to leave because that's sort of, you can't cite economic theory while running a strategy that depends on that theory not holding, right? So, so this information advantage um, not only, I think, is, is ethically questionable, but it's certainly something that is very difficult to predict in advance. It's very difficult for it to figure out the extent to which a given insurer is going to use that, informa that information advantage against you as, as the customer. But anyway, most people, when they look at all of this at this stage, say, yeah, but I mean, we've got, we've got the internet, right? If you don't get your claims paid, if, you know, if, if the insurer puts through an unfair increase, you can just go online and complain, right? And that's, that's, the, that's the feedback loop that will make sure that the market functions effectively. Well, I don't know if anyone's actually tried that and, and, and got on to something like Hello Peter. What you find is that every single insurer has countless scathing reviews. Right? It is impossible really to discern the, you know, the wheat from the chaff. It's, just, it's impossible to discern the signal from the noise of the quality of the insurance product. So effectively this doesn't work. And the reason for this um, is because not only does the future performance of the insurance product depend on the provider's behavior, it also depends on the customer's behavior. Right? You have to, as a, as a customer, do, you have certain responsibilities. Keep your car in a roadworthy condition, make sure you turn your alarm on when you leave the house, those kind of things. When, when somebody's claim is rejected, let's say because they're, they're driving drunk, as fair as it might be to the insurer, it doesn't feel fair to the customer. 
right? They are out of pocket, potentially hundreds of thousands of rands. Their family could be destitute. And so they go onto these online forums and they vent. And they hope perhaps that if they shout loudly enough, the insurer might change their mind, right? That's, that's what's going on. That's why it makes it so difficult to, to figure out um, which insurers are good and which insurers are bad based on, uh, based on the online performance. So, so based on these factors, we feel it's absolutely clear there's a product comparability problem and, and in addition, therefore, we have a market for lemons in insurance. And just to remind us what that actually means. What it means is that only bad insurance can survive in the market. If you think, no, you're going to do something good, you're going to start an insurance company that puts through you know, only fair premium increases, that doesn't do any of these manipulative strategies in order to you know, find ways not to pay claims, what's going to happen? Well, if, the, if buyers can't discern between you and, and the bad players, they're not going to pay a premium. Right? They, you're just going to make less money, less premium, more claims. You're not going to attract investment. You're not going to be able to market, and you're going to die. It's that simple. Okay, so what are we going to do about this? What are, the, what are the kind of responses that are already in play in the market, and where is this going in terms of the future insur of insurance? So if a market doesn't work, the standard response to that is regulation. And that's then the reason why we have seen all this excessive insurance regulation being introduced right over the world. But as all of us in this room knows, regulation is costly. And ultimately, that cost flows through to the customer. Now, in addition to that, the other thing regulations do is they make insurance companies slow. They slow them down in totality, all their operations, and make it a lot harder to respond quickly to changing customer needs. So if you think about those two things, it's pretty obvious that we need to try and look for a non-regulatory solution to the issues that Alex raised. Now, I know there's a lot of you sitting here in the audience thinking, what's wrong with these people? Have they never heard about brokers? Of course, man. You're right, the independent broker could solve some of these problems. If it was a good broker, they should be able to compare two different insurance companies, have a good view of their anniversary strategies, whether they actually will pay your claim or what the likelihood is. And they actually also have leverage at claim stage because they've got that whole book behind them. But if we look at that, same problem as with regulations. Brokers cost money. And secondly, by bringing the broker into the mix, you've now just moved the comparability problem on. Now, that problem doesn't sit with the insurer, it sits with the broker. Now, you don't know how to compare brokers with each other. And the fact that we now also have binder regulations speaks to the fact that the regulator also thinks that. Now, and lastly, and for me, this is a really important one. If you talk to the new generation of customer, they will also tell you that they do not want to deal with an intermediary. They want to be empowered to do their own thing. Now, where are we now? So basically, we are looking for non-regulatory, non-broker solutions. And if we look at where the market is now, we're going to be, start throwing technology into the mix as well. What's going to happen if all of a sudden you can buy instantly, you can cancel online, and we have all kinds of new players coming into the fray as well. We've got the online retailers, like I said, technology companies, OEMs. And while there is forces pulling in both directions, it is definitely our view that as machine learning and AI improve, 
Markets are going to get worse, not better. At the moment, as we stand, in South Africa, a lot of our uh, insurers have world-leading machine learning equations to optimize shareholder value. And as AI actually gets better at understanding and predicting how we will behave in certain circumstances, the opportunities that we will have as insurance providers to exploit our customers will just become more, not less. So, if we think about that, wouldn't the best thing be to look at potentially different business models that do not have these problems that Alex spoke about? Now, all of us have seen a large number of different people trying different peer-to-peer -peer models in the industry. And now, I think it's a good question to ask. If we change the role of the insurer from that of participating in the risk pool to being more of an administrator, could that potentially result in some changes in behavior? If the insurer no longer made more money if they didn't pay your claim, is there a possibility that they would use that information advantage that they have to the benefit of the customer? rather than against them. And that uh, guilt that Alex spoke about, that, that you have, if you feel you should have done something which you didn't, is it likely that insurers might actually start helping you with some of those discretionary, discretionary elements that you are responsible for? So say, for example, they can see that you have to renew your car license disc next week. Maybe they could then remind you that you should do it rather than saying nothing and actually hoping that you won't do it because, cool, if you come and claim, I can reject your claim. So a lot of these peer-to-peer -peer models, um, I, I must say, the sailing hasn't been smooth so far and they have encountered a lot of problems. Issues such as how do you capitalize these models? Um, the results within the groups are very volatile. Very often the payouts to the people in the peer group is really small. Uh, how do you construct these peer groups? And also there's, there's real social pressures and issues resulting from peer-to-peer -peer insurance. Um, and finally, I suppose I always say the, the proof is in the pudding, we haven't seen a large take-up from customers for these models. And we've even seen some of the bigger ones fail recently. So I would say we're still very interested to see where peer-to-peer -peer is going and where it will end up, especially if we start talking about things like uh, fully autonomous peer groups that may be housed on the blockchain and where you have decentralized decision-making. But we are far from being able to implement anything like that. So when we started Naked two years ago, a lot of what we've been discussing today was very present in our mind. We were clear that technology was going to revolutionize the industry, an enormous amount of opportunity to improve customer experience. But equally, AI and machine learning is going to present all these opportunities to further exploit customers for the benefit of shareholders. And, and we became concerned about just implementing a technology business really wasn't going far enough that we needed to find a model which actually uh, you know, really addressed the market failures that are going on within the direct insurance markets in this country and elsewhere.
And, and that's why we, we ended up with this fixed fee model, which is kind of like peer-to-peer -peer light, really. It's, it's simply saying that we're, taking, we're not implementing a full peer-to-peer -peer model, but just taking a flat fee rather than participating in underwriting profits so that we don't benefit you know, by not paying claims, that we change the relationship between you know, the, the insurance provider and the client to one where, where we're more like a platform Right, where, we, where our success is much more aligned with the clients. You know, when they enjoy the product, when they, when they stay on the product, that's when we do well. We don't do well when we find ways to, to lower claims or push through big premium increases. Right? And, and so that's where we ended up there. But of course, it's still really early days in this whole wave of change that is, that is washing through the insurance industry. There's a lot of other local and international players doing a range of different things in this space. And I think it's incredibly exciting. And I would encourage all of you to, to join in the discussion too. Thanks very much. Okay, so while the sound guys come and collect the microphones, uh, we do have time for a couple of questions. Um, is there anyone that would, if you'd like to ask a question, maybe raise your hand? We've got a question. We've got a question at the back there. Thanks uh, for that presentation. Um, but naive to think that um, only by a shareholder proprietary insurance model uh, do you have to try and make sure that people don't cheat on their claims and all the rest of it. You know, mutual insurance groups for many, many years have had to make sure that you know, there is a certain amount of consistency in how you treat different policyholders at claim stage and underwriting stage. So, you know, if, if I think, I take your point of the, the market of lemons, but I think doing something like you're suggesting where you, know, you don't have to not pay claims would lead very quickly to excessive claim admission and then a breakdown of the whole peer or mutual or sell captive, um, whatever, whichever way you describe it. I don't know if you got all of that. No. Oh, sorry. I Paul, the, the, the audio on this side of the room is quite poor, so I picked up sort of every second word. So, but I, so and maybe just in for future speakers' questions, just please try to, I don't know, really speak slowly. Um, I th but I think what you were saying, if I, if I got the gist of it, was that, uh, that in, in sort of the, in the experience of mutuals and, and other sort of peer-to-peer -peer kind of models, you still had many, many problems and many people sort of, you know, with issues of, of um, you know, strategies to try and lower claims and that sort of thing. Is that, is that more or less right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's, it's not to say that in, in these peer-to-peer -peer models that insurers don't have any incentive to keep claims low. Of, of course they do, but by, by keeping claims low, premiums are likely to be lower, you're going to attract more people onto the book. But those effects are much, more, are much less direct. Okay, if you look at the sort of way the budget cycle works in a, in a standard insurer, you know, where you've got an underwriting target, the, at the level of, the, of, of the kind of, of human behavior, when you're tracking a, 
direct target like that, the impact on how you behave at the literally at the micro level, right? This is not a theoretical thing. This is something where a claims handler is sitting there knowing that underwriting performance this very year depends on, the, on how um, you know, the claims performance ends up in this particular claim that I'm dealing with. And it's at that level that we see a significant level of change. The behavior, the mindset change is really significant when you, when you move away from directly participating in underwriting profits to one of really trying to enable a successful and sustainable underwriting pool in our experience. Can we just get to audio on mic too? Hello, yeah. Siri and Alex, thank you very much for a very thought-provoking talk. Um, medical scheme administrators have been charging fixed fees for as long as medical scheme business has been ruled by the Medical Schemes Act, and yet we suffer from the same perception that it's an insurance you know, profit problem and that we deny claims to, to increase our profits. How do you suggest we go about marketing these fixed fees better to say, you know, we're, we're, our, our incentives are all aligned and we're not trying to make an insurance profit from you, we're just trying to pay claims from, from the pool of money that's available. I mean, so the challenge exists even for us where we have, you know, by law, not allowed to, to make insurance profits. How do, you, how do you go about addressing the perception in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose worth saying that uh, the, I, mean, I suppose there's a reason why in the medical scheme market and, and in, you know, in, in medical insurance internationally, um, there's always a lot of sensitivity about participating directly in underwriting performance um, and why we perhaps have that in this, in this country. But I agree with you, the perception issue and the, and the marketing thereof is a significant challenge. We see that challenge, I think, as you're pointing to sort of the medical schemes. Um, and, and I suppose it's one of the reasons we're talking here is really to try to sort of air and lift um, the discussion about this, to get people to try to realize, um, you know, it's all about that, that signaling, that, that those, those questions of evaluating and comparing different, you know, different providers. We're trying to define a different category. You know, we, we, people think that you know, we're competing against other people that are doing you know, similar things to what we're doing and taking flat fees. We're actually very pleased that there are more people sort of validating that approach. And what we're trying to air is the distinction, is to say there's one model and there's a different model. And when you are deciding on your insurance, bring that into, into what you do. But I suppose the other side of it is it's got to be proof in the pudding. You know, are the outcomes actually different? And, and really trying to highlight and, and market the, you know, the good outcomes that people have and try to establish the link between that and the model that we're using. But it is probably the single biggest challenge, and I think for the, you know, the, sort of the old hands in the industry here, most of their skepticism will arise from that. Like, yeah, well, you, know, you might be onto something, who knows? But you know, in that market for lemons, are the buyers going to be able to tell the difference? That, that is the core question, and that's what we're looking at, yeah. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, so if I could just um, add on to both your comments. I think um, the one thing about most peer-to-peer insurers -peer, um, across the world is that whatever surplus is obtained is either given to charity or is given back to the, the policyholders. So if medical schemes every year were to take their surplus and give it back to the members, then maybe there will be less complaints. Just a thought. <laughs> When, when was there a surplus? I suppose, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. I mean, I guess that's a marketing point, and I suppose that's one of the strategies that's being used to try to, um, you know, to try to make it something that people are aware of. Do you want to say something? Yeah. Cool. 
Okay, great. Thank you very Thank much. You.